business stuck? Tired of leaving money on the table? Are you ready to take it to the next level? Join us as we dive deep into the small business secrets successful entrepreneurs are implementing to see massive results. This is the Business Growth Hacks Podcast, presented by Beefy Marketing. Here's your host, Andrew Brockenbush. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Business Growth Hacks Podcast. Today's interview is sponsored by Wingman, where you can manage your entire marketing and sales tasks from one platform. You can streamline your communication, automate your processes, and grow your business with the all-in-one marketing and sales automation software. You can check it out at trustyourwingman.com. Today, we are getting a great conversation from a brand tracking expert, Dominic Artzruni. Welcome to the show, man. Super excited to have you here. Hey, Andrew. Great to be with you. Really looking forward to this conversation we're about to have. Yeah. You, so you've got an epic name, and I hope I didn't butcher it. I think we've got it right. Did we do our? You right? did it. You did it great. I'm really impressed. That's awesome, man. I'm excited. Well, well, Dominic is a well-known expert on the subject of brand tracking, has graciously consented to the interview to share with us kind of the beginner's guide in his area so every small business owner out there can understand how to get started how you can start monitoring your brand. And I'm sure he's going to give us a lot of tips and tricks that I have no idea what I'm talking about. So the reality is Dominic is going to school us. So let's get right in. Dominic, I'm going to kick this thing off with an icebreaker, okay? Let's kick it. Ice, icebreaker. Okay, icebreaker for you today. If you had to choose one song to play every time you entered a room, what would it be? Oof, that's a hard one. So many come to mind, but... I have to say In Too Deep by Sum 41, because that was oh. my favorite song growing up, and it very much represents the my philosophy towards life, so I'll go with that. Oh, that's good. Honestly, like, I didn't look at this before. I did not look at the icebreaker question we had before we started, which is actually a good thing, because now I'm also equally on the spot with you about what it would be. Oh, this is this is – there's so many genres of music you could go with, right? You've got – Maybe like lose yourself from Eminem. You know, I'm I'm like a I'm technically an '80s kid, but really I'm like a '90s <laughs> kid, right? Like, and so I think that Eminem was like a big part of like my growing up. I think that would be cool. But then you've got like a lot of rock bands that were also popular back then. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't have a definitive answer. I, I I'm really, really, really. Oh, Jump Around by House of Pain. That's a good one. There's just there's a lot. There's a lot of good ones. I, I'm gonna just say. I'm going to go with Eminem. Today, today I'm going to go with Eminem just because. Yeah, it's good. You can't go wrong with that. Can't, can't go wrong there, right? Oh, man. Well, this is a good way for us to kind of just kick things off, uh, get to know each other just a little bit better. But if if we could just take it take it really far back, tell us kind of who you are, how you got started, and, and how did you end up in the world of brand tracking? So I'm, as corny as it sounds, I'm a citizen of the world. I was born in the U.S. in New Orleans to a French-American dad and a British mom. And we moved back to France where my dad had grown up when I was three years old. So I grew up in an English-speaking household in France, but always staying in touch with American culture. So whether it was music, like we just talked about, movies, TV, sports, I always had my eye on there. And I am a U.S. citizen, so I always felt, you know, American as sort of an expat. Yeah. And then I moved to the UK uh, for a university at 18. 
not thinking I was going to settle there, but it turned out that England's kind of somewhere in between Europe and the US culturally as well as geographically. And so I settled there. I've now been here so since university. And I'm actually, because of my mom, a British citizen as well. So I'm a French-American British citizen, both legally, but also culturally. Um, and I think relating it back to business from a business point of view as well. I've had this conversation with a couple of people about how the business cultures differ a lot from yeah. those three different countries. And again, Britain is somewhere in between France and the US where it's more entrepreneurial than France, but it's still not in people's gut as much as it is in the US. You know, in, in the US, everyone starts a business, not not just thinks about it, but everyone's like got that hustle mentality. Yeah, And that weirdly is kind of what I've always had as um, since I was a kid. I was I know, again, it's a cliche for people who start their own businesses, but I was like selling Pokemon stickers on the playgrounds. I set up a dog tags importing company on eBay when I was a teenager. Um, so I always had things going on uh, before I went off to university. Then, so I always had that entrepreneurial spirit. I remember my dad would ask me when I was, you know, a really young kid, he's like, what do you want to be? And I'd say, I want to be a businessman. And he'd say, well, you, what does that mean? What are you going to do? And I, at the time I was like, I was stumped. I didn't know. But, you know, I was nine years old. You're not supposed to come up with a business idea yeah, then. Sure. Went, went off to university, got a traditional, um, you know, education. Interestingly, once I was like in that sort of, you know, framework, my entrepreneurial spirit wasn't really there as much. Plus, you're busy at college, sort of yeah. like discovering yourself, the world and alcohol. Yeah, um, all, those, all those things, right? And then I think probably the turning point in my journey was when I graduated, having come out of that structure, I wanted a, I wanted a normal job. I was, I'd studied business and I was really interested in marketing and branding. And so, but I've always been passionate about movies. So I started looking at the jobs I really wanted was, for example, marketing at Warner Brothers. I remember I went for two different interviews. I got very close and it was going to be in London. And as someone who'd been in the UK for years, not in London, I always wanted to get to London. Yeah. And, but I didn't, I didn't get those jobs. And at the time it was a real kick in the teeth. I ended up working for a tiny market research company, up in the middle of nowhere in the country, far from my friends, far from uh, my family. But they they did something interesting. They did market research. They analyzed the price and the range of of um, clothing brands of supermarkets. So H and M, Primark, uh, Gap, all those sorts of people. And they and because and they needed someone who was a who was a French speaker because they wanted to expand to that market. So I was the perfect candidate. I needed a job. I went for it, and I threw myself one hundred percent. And interestingly. The, working in this small company that was run by a couple who were the directors, I worked with the director every single day. It kind of brought back to the surface this desire to do my own thing because I was very good at the job. I built the business from nothing into like six figures within like six months. And because I was the only person who could speak French, I did every aspect. I was finding the, the potential clients. I was pitching to them. I was setting up the projects. I was managing them. I was delivering them, presenting them. I was even invoicing them at the end. And after a couple of years, I thought, I, I feel like I could do this by myself. And I didn't want to, I wasn't a competition thing. Fashion is, it was interesting. I really like working in something you can actually relate to, like everyone wears clothes. But I thought I'd like to do this in an area that I really care about, which is movies and specifically product placement. Because as I talked about before, when I kind of honed in on my areas of interest, it was business, marketing, branding, and product placement. And so I kind of, you know, I'd not overnight, but I started working while I was at my job analyzing brands in movies and TV shows. I started building up a database, a sort of proof of concept of what 
brand tracking would look like in product placement, literally going through movies, music videos, and recording every single brand that appeared and building this database. And I went in with no understanding at the time of how product placement actually worked. The dream was always that I would quit my job with a couple of clients ready and it would all be easy going. But of course, that didn't happen. Never that easy. Um, no, I even, I, it was, it was not something that it didn't come easy. I didn't have any clients lined up when I quit my job. I had a little bit of savings, but I, the great thing about this is a business to business endeavor was that I was able to literally start with no money, literally just a laptop. And I had a little bit of long story short, it took about three years from when I started thinking about the idea to have some serious income stream and then probably another couple of years for it to go from struggling from surviving to actually doing well and now we're just celebrating 10 years having done this we work wow. with some of the biggest brands in the world we've scanned thousands of movies we valued over 17 billion dollars in product placement value and now things are doing great we work with brands like dell they were our first giant client we work with ray-ban with anheuser-busch so budweiser bud light we're just signing with uh, fiat chrysler so Everything is going really well now, but it's been a really long journey and I've learned a lot along the way. Yeah, I mean, it's not one of those things you just learn or pick up overnight per se. When you first started documenting, as you were watching movies and I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I imagine TV shows as well and you were documenting these things, did you know what the monetization strategy was going to be at that time? Like, did you know how you were going to be able to monetize that information? So that's a great question. I did. That is one the one thing that never changed is that my idea was always to collect data and then sell that data back to the brands that were doing the product placement. And that was not even understanding at the time how it worked. But because of the background where I came from, where I knew that a clothing a retailer wants to know exactly how their price positions compared to their competitors, I was like, surely a brand, you know, a car company wants to know I assumed at the time they knew how they were doing, but they wanted to know how they compared to our competitor. If we're in 15 movies, is that more or less than our competitors? Who's, who's driving our cars? What context are they being shown in? One of the biggest turning points and things that I didn't know at the beginning was that the core metric was going to be this product placement valuation. So putting a dollar figure on a product placement. So saying Budweiser was in this film for two minutes and that's worth $5 million. That's not something I did at the beginning. And that's one of the reasons why I struggled. And I would work with companies who were interested in my data, but they'd sort of hint, they'd be like, this is great, but we're currently buying data from someone else that tells us this value. And so, you know, as you a get, business person- to elevate to that, right? Yeah. Exactly. I, and I looked at it and it was, it's, it's very theoretical to sure. say that this is worth something, which is why I didn't do it at first. But then I realized everyone else is making, doing this theoretically, so, so can I. Yeah, exactly. And I did it. And now, honestly, I do it better than anyone else. And the big differentiating factor is I'm the only company in the world that specializes only at this. The other people who do it are, are either their agencies who do product placement. So they're kind of not really objective. They're kind of measuring themselves, which I always think is a bit ambiguous, which is why brands come to me or even agencies come to me. They say, hey, we do this, but our brand wants a third party to come in and evaluate our work. Or they're giant companies like Nielsen or Comscore who, you know, they're doing hundreds of millions or billions in other business. And this teeny tiny business is just not important to them. Yeah. Whereas you, on the flip side, you can come to me who I'm an expert in the field. This I live and I breathe this. I'll answer your email, your phone calls any time of day. And I, and I, yeah, I'm so passionate about this. I'm so yeah. excited about it. And I realized this now that I've survived so long, 10 years in the industry, one of the biggest, one of the biggest differentiating factors I have is that 
even though I have people working for me, I'm the face of the company. I'm always going to be involved. Whereas if you work with a big company, they have people who changing every couple of years who are just about learning how product placement works. And you don't have to worry about that with me because, you know, now I know how it works inside and out. And I look forward to telling your listeners more about it during this chat. Yeah. So I think that that's a great opportunity for us to kind of pivot to the question of why does it like, I mean, this is a, for you, you know this, but I think for our listeners, they don't. Like, why does this matter? Like, why is this data so important for uh, brands? But also, I think it's kind of cool to see a peek behind the curtain of what about how do I how do I position this? How do brands make money off their product being placed in this? Are they charging the the, the movie producers later on for saying, "Oh, I was in your film three times. You owe me money," or is it more of just a perceived value perception? I think our listeners would like to understand that a little bit better. Absolutely. So I think the, to answer your question properly, I'll start with basically a very quick crash course on how product placement works and as a result, why this data is important. So product placement, there's this misconception that brands pay millions of dollars to appear in films, but actually there's it's, a, it's shades of gray. The two extremes are, in some cases, a brand will pay a lot of money to be in a movie. But if the if it's more than a couple of hundred thousand, even that's a lot, it's usually for more than product placement. A perfect example was Heineken in James Bond. They supposedly paid $40 million for that deal. And then they appeared in the film for like 12 seconds. And people said, this is product placement gone crazy. The truth is there was a complete misunderstanding of how it worked. That 40 million was actually... The, the the product placement was a cherry on top. What they were really paying for was the rights to use Daniel Craig's appearance on Billboard. They even filled a commercial of him drinking a Heineken and used it in it. And that's what you're paying for because yeah. brands like to be associated with a movie through product placement, but more broadly, they'll like advertise. And there's this huge part of the industry that's called cross-promotion. So it's a win-win for both people. Heineken gets to say, Oh, look, James Bond likes Heineken and use him. But also in every billboard, they're set, they're like Casino Royale in theaters, October 3rd, go see it. So it's a win as well as getting everybody, money. Everybody been as, been a bit Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But that's, those things are very rare. There's probably a handful of them every year. I can't think of an example like, you know, this year of it. Um, then you've got times when they're not, when they're paying smaller fees. So maybe they're just paying 10, 20 grand sort of to edge out the competition, you know. If it's a beer brand and you're a production company and you're like, hey, these two beer companies want to want to want our character to drink them. Maybe if they pay us a little bit of money, we'll we'll like prefer it. But honestly, even there, it's all about relationships. There's someone on set who has to decide what case of beer are we going to have in the background. It can be and it's not someone high up. Maybe occasionally you'll have a Quentin Tarantino that says, no, my character drinks this very particular brand of beer. Sure. But usually they, they're like, we just need, we're in a bar. We we'll need get, signs. We'll we need, yeah, exactly. yeah we, we need, need beer. yeah. And, but you have someone at Anheuser-Busch who knows the right person and who's like, give me two days. I'll come, I'll build a bar for you. I'll give you all the beer you want. And that's how Anheuser-Busch is like the king of beer, not only in the market, but also in product placement. So that's like smaller fees to no fees. And then, and I transition there to the no fees because most of the time, more than 50% of the time, the brands that you're seeing and people, when they think of product placement, they probably think of the more high profiles, yeah. like the close-ups and stuff, but movies are filled with it. Like, even if like right now, our two screens was a movie, you've got, um, you know, you've got our microphones, you've got our headphones, you've got Apple in the background. Exactly. And like, yeah, if you were doing a movie about people like a podcaster, 
you, th the right person would probably know the prop master. The prop master would reach out and he's like, listen, I need 10 sets of headphones and I need some microphones. And it's all about knowing the right person. In a case like that, they're not going to be paying to be in it, but they're going to provide the right product at the right time to the right person. Yeah, That's kind of the majority of product placement. So no fees, just facilitating it. And then you get, the, you get the other end of the spectrum, which is the brands don't even know about it. They just happen to use a particular car or a particular laptop or a particular that's set right. of headphones because that's what there was. So that's how it happens. In that middle, so that really important middle of facilitating to small fee, the way that happens is there's someone at the brands. Usually it's one person. Well, usually it's a, it's a team of people or maybe they outsource to an agency. And their job is to basically be aware of everything that's going on Hollywood. What are the new shows? What are the new movies? And then keeping up those connections with the prop masters, the costume designers, the set decorators, and basically so that that way when, hey, we need five computers, call up their guy at Dell who knows them. And he's like, yeah, I'll ship them to you. He won't even give them to them. He'll just lend them to them. But then Dell is like one of the biggest brands in movies just because the guy there, his name's Gary Moore. I've worked with him for years and he always, he always loves to like help out uh, movies and TV shows as well, because it really is a win-win situation where the people on set don't have to spend hundreds of thousands on gear, and then the brands in exchange get their value. Yeah, and so I talk about the value. This is where I come in. Someone like that, Adele, he spends all his time, you know, shipping out stuff to sets and bringing it back and managing it. But the big question at the end of the day, that his managers say, is like, well, what's was the it, point of doing? Yeah, this? Was it worth it? Yeah. <laughs> And he can say, and you know, a lot of these brands and these agencies, they'll show a cool sizzle reel. And it's like, look, like we're in, we're in Mission Impossible. We're in James Bond. And, and I think to a certain extent for some people that works, but yeah, we live in such vanity metrics, right? Like ones that just make you feel good, but not necessarily deliver true exactly. ROI. Yeah. But then an ROI, you hit the nail on the head in this data driven. And I think maybe 10, 20 years ago, that was fine. But in the ROI driven, data driven world that we work in now, they need numbers. And that's where I come in a company like Dell or Anheuser-Busch, they come to me and they say, hey, we've done all these placements. Tell us what it's worth. And this is the best thing about product placement beyond being cool. And as you say, scratching that vanity is it's the best ROI I think that exists on planet Earth. Like a good, a good placement is in the thousands of percent ROI. You spend you spend $10,000 and maybe you get, you'll get hundreds of thousands to million, potentially tens of million. We've seen, I've done valuations where the ROI is in the tens of thousands. And it's because the investment is so small. It can literally go from nothing that literally you just sent them a free product to, as I said, you spend 10, 20 grand, but then you get millions in value. And that's why the importance of what I do. So it's basically telling them how well they're doing. And so then they can go to their manager and say, hey, our product placement department costs half a million. Based on this data, we're getting fifty million in value from it. Yeah. Should we keep doing that? And they're yes. like, "Can I give? Can I give you more money? Please stay." Absolutely, it. yeah. That's that's pretty fascinating, honestly. Because for one, it was nice to see kind of a peek behind the industry because I don't think I fully understood it. I mean, you hear most people, like you said, hear like about the big ones, right? And then I think naturally we see that, like, see some, like for example, I watched this show called The Rookie. And the main character of the rookie, uh, it, who's a police officer, he gets this brand new Toyota Tundra. And there's multiple times throughout this show where he's like, my Tundra was right outside. And it's like, oh, God, this is such a clear product placement, right? Where it's like just on the, on the nose where, like you said, there's so many micro moments throughout a film or a TV show 
that there was probably a hundred brands that you saw and you didn't even, you might not have been picked up on how many brands actually existed within that frame. Um, that, that is really fascinating. So how do you put a dollar amount to the ROI? Like, how do you, how do you come up with, Hey, this is what it's worth. So, and again, this is what I had to learn at the time. It's, I, it's not a secret or anything. It's a, there's a, is a broad, the, the philosophy basically is to draw a comparison between a product placement and a TV commercial, because we know how much, um, you know, a 30 second ad costs on US TV. So, you know, you, we, so basically we take an average of the cost of advertising to calculate a CPM. So the cost per million, um, for TV ads, but obviously 30 seconds of, you know, having a, a Budweiser sign in the background is not the same as a 30 second commercial, which is all about Budweiser. So when we so as well as calculating a CPM, when we watch content, we'll record um, how long it's on. So 30 seconds, how prominent it is. So the big difference is, you know, between having a, a close up on your phone versus having a sign in the background or it just being, you know, for example, our headphones now would be subtle. Or if it was something really small, like just the top of a bottle, it would be discreet. So we have five levels of that. And then whether the logo is visible. Those two things basically is we're, we're measuring the duration and the quality because, and the reason why it's so important to measure the quality is so that we can say this is worth about 10% what a TV commercial is worth because it's low quality or 50% if it's better or 100% if it's super high quality. And then we take into account the viewership because that's super important. Obviously, when you're buying a TV commercial for a TV show, like you're taking into account the audience. So we're taking into account the audience as well. So we're taking the cost of advertising the viewership, the duration, and the quality. And we basically blend those together in our formula. And we tell someone, your product placement is worth a million dollars. And I, the way I explain it is when I say that a product placement is worth a million dollars, I'm saying it would cost a million dollars in traditional ad buy to get the equivalent amount of exposure when taking into account duration, quality, and viewership. Got so it. that's the that's that, how we explain it. That, that totally makes sense. So how... How does like social media, like the kind of the, the evolution of social media affect the business that you're in? Because what used to be consumed solely on the big screen is now in everybody's pocket in America, right? Like between, because it's not, now it's more than just like, you know, an hour and a half in the theater. It's a two minute clip that someone shared on TikTok or it's an Instagram short or a YouTube video. Does that play into y'all's industry? So it's on the, it's, I'd say it's on the fringes of it. Um, I think when I said, when I started off, I actually focused, for example, on music videos. And, but I very quickly found that there was, even though that's huge, there was loads of product placement in there and there still is. And I still have yet to have a client that puts that on their like list of placements to measure. So I think, and I think this is the same with like the social media stuff. Product placement is happening. The, whether it's paid for deliberately or whether it's organic, like, uh, you know, Mr. Beast happens to feature like you know a lamborghini or like wearing a particular brand of t-shirt yeah. like there's huge value there and the day that a client wants to find out my methodology can absolutely be applied to that but i can say that as of now from the measurement point of view there isn't quite that interest from the actual activation there is like one of the big things about product placement the more deliberate maybe even paid for is that you need to do more than just do the placement you need to activate it so for example Say you have you've paid fifty grand to be the you know the 
the a t-shirt worn by an actor an up-and-coming actor in a mid-budget movie that's successful what you really want to then do is kind of keep that actor sort of on the payroll so have them post that they really like the brand maybe give them some free clothes make them a brand ambassador maybe you have an event maybe they go on like a talk show wearing a t-shirt or they tell a story about the brand and then all of that then trickles into social media so Social media is a really good way to amplify the value of product placement because, yeah, you want to do more than just people see it and then they forget about it. Because the more you sort of remind people that, hey, those are the some or, you know, sunglasses are a really big one. When, yeah. when I ask people, what product do you think does the most product placement value? Cars is by far the number one, but eyewear is a big one because obviously when someone's wearing eyewear, it's yeah, a front and center it. the whole time. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so social media is a great tool to utilize product placement. And obviously it exists in social media, but from my point of view, from the measurement, it's kind of not the main focus. Not the main focus. Yeah. And do you think it will evolve to that eventually? <clears throat> Maybe like, you know, yeah, it's I, hard to say, I'm right? a, yeah, I'm a data guy. I would love, I, you know, whether I'm watching basketball or movies or whatever, I always want to see the data about everything. So I would love for someone to ask me that and for us to quantify it like all the different value and stuff yeah but i do still think that the the content that the long form tv shows and movies are always going to be at the center of it because you know even if you have a tiktok video that gets 10 million views chances are your brand's only going to be in it for two seconds and obviously one of the driving factors of value is duration so for sure yeah it's just like it's it's just like any other vertical podcast advertising or anything like the lifespan of all of these ads are different right yeah. So, and that's actually that's such a really great point that you brought up there about the lifespan because you're right, the social media things fade, but the great thing about product placement in movies is that we're still watching movies from 30, 40 years ago and we're still seeing the brands in it. So there's something timeless about product placement yeah. which doesn't really apply for example to social media. People aren't going to watch TikToks from like a year ago. Yeah, it's like it has a short shelf life to some extent. It's like when it comes out, it's massive. But yeah. then once it's done, it's done. It's like, okay, what's next? It's such a fast paced platform yeah. where, like you said, there's movies that, you know, I talk about like James and the Giant Peach and, you know, Wizard of Oz and Char Char what is it called? Uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Like all these movies from my childhood, it's like we still talk about those. Like there's moments about all those videos that were that are special. And like I said, the advertisements li live on forever. What are, what are some of the big challenges you guys – are facing in the brand tracking arena like what are some of the things that you guys are struggling with or finding to be a little bit more difficult kind of in the current way that the industry is moving so a difficulty we have i'll start with a negative and turn it into a positive yeah. <laughs> a difficulty we had a couple of years ago was with the streamers because up until like when i and i because i started basically just as netflix was exploding but for the first few years we were able to sort of ignore them so we would do movies look at the box office information. We do music videos, look at the YouTube counts. We do TV shows, look at the Nielsen ratings. But as we moved on, the big, there were huge, bigger and bigger movies on Netflix, bigger yeah. and bigger TV shows. So we got to the point where we're like, for our formula to work, we need viewerships. And so that was a huge challenge. Now, Netflix, um, I think actually this, I started doing this before Netflix um, started releasing data because they do actually release a good chunk of data now every week on the top films and the top TV shows. But before that, I developed an in-house model to kind of estimate the viewership of these TV shows and these movies on Netflix. It's not a perfect science, but honestly, it's like one of the best systems there is out there to give you at least an idea of what's doing well. Um, without going too much into detail, we've basically found there's a correlation, a really strong correlation between the number of people who review 
TV shows and movies on on uh, websites like Metacritic, Rotten Tomatoes, IMDb, and the number of people who watch uh, who watch them. So we're able to kind of figure out that link, and so we can say a movie that's on Amazon or on Hulu or on Netflix, we can estimate approximately how many people have watched it. So that was a challenge. And we actually really got ahead of that. We started investing um, a lot of time into figuring this out. And then this was before COVID. And obviously during COVID, everything was streaming only. And honestly, I don't know what we would have done that those two years if we didn't have this model in existence, but we did. So for basically two years, we were like, no, we, were, we can continue doing business because we can estimate how many people have watched it. And obviously we explained the model to our clients and everyone bought into it. So that was that was a good combination of preparation and an opportunity. And now Netflix releasing some information, that was a huge help. We basically able to factor that into our model. And so now we're doing great on that end. Another thing that comes to mind, it's not so much a, th- it's, well, it could theoretically be a threat, but I think it's already been neutralized is this, it's what's called virtual product placement. Have you ever heard of that? No. So virtual product placement is the idea of adding or changing the brands in post-production. So for example, you know, I've got a, I've got a poster of Wolf of Wall Street here. If this is a TV show, they could change that to a movie that's about to come out or whatever. Or this is the principle, at least. Or if someone's drinking a Coca-Cola, they can edit it to a Pepsi based on like the region and stuff. And obviously, if that were to happen, and the, the idea, the really forward-thinking idea would be to turn movies into kind of a Google ads marketplace so that every time a netflix or amazon episode is coming on they could look at the demographics and be like okay this is a 25 year old woman which brand is going to bid more to be the one uh, that's going to be in the hands of what she's of what she's holding this is the theory so purely from my point of view it would be disastrous because if this became universal we can no longer say every single person who watches this they will see a budweiser beer being drunken but beyond that, and I, I think I can separate the two, I think as a human being and a lover of movie that it's an absolute bastardization of the art. So yeah. I think it's a horrible, horrible idea. There's, but there are a couple of companies, you know, million dollar companies that have been doing this for a couple of years, but they seem to be failing miserably. Amazon tried to do this as well internally. So they did some virtual product placements in shows like Jack Ryan or Bosch. Um, but as far as I know, the whole idea has fizzled because it's expensive. Everyone who does traditional product placement doesn't like it. I'm sure it's an absolute legal quagmire to actually get the rights to do this because, you know, actors don't want to have, or directors, you know, as I said before, a lot of directors will say, my character wears this type of clothing. He smokes this type of cigarette. He drinks this type of beer. They're not going to let someone who's just trying to make a quick buck change that 20 years in the future. So, that was kind of a bit of a complication in the industry, but wow. everyone I've talked, everyone I've spoken to, absolutely hates the idea, and it kind of seems like it's fizzling out. That's re- that's actually really interesting because, again, coming from the podcast world, we worked with a traditional podcast network and basically like the labels of podcasts, right? And a lot of the popular stuff there now is dynamic insertion, which is the idea of sh- stripping out old backlog catalog ads and reinserting some other type of ad, right? So like this podcast today, I could literally, whenever I post it on the, the distribution platform, I highlight where I said my, like, like obviously in the beginning of the intro, we had an ad. I could highlight that section, those seconds. And then later on in post-production, they can just dynamically insert a new ad in that spot because it knows where to cut, where to drop the ad and where to go back into the show. Um, and I, I've seen a huge trend in the podcast agency world 
where that's like becoming the norm. Like when someone buys an ad spot, they're buying it really for that first like six months of it running. And then after that, six months later, they take out all the ads that I did a live read, like a true personal endorsement. They strip that out and they put in Southwest airlines and you know, the latest whatever. And to me, I agree. I don't, I think it kind of bastardized it because it takes out some of the authenticity, right? Arguably you could say any advertisement is not a hundred percent authentic. Cause I'm still having to, I'm, I'm still having to make up something about this brand. <laughs> but the reality though, too, is I approved it. Like I was able to say, I'm cool with talking about this thing. So if I, you know, like, like, like you said, if we we're talking like this and I approved to have this Apple shirt behind me, or I approved to hold a Coca-Cola can in my hand. And then all of a sudden five years from now, you put a truly can in my hand. I'd be like, I don't drink that shit. Like that's not for me. Like I'm not a seltzer guy, you know? So it takes, it, it really starts to like become an ethics issue in my, in my opinion. Like, it's like, wait I a agree. second. Like, this is weird that I never thought, I mean, in the world of podcasting, it's so normal to me. I'm like, oh yeah, duh. I never even thought about like the idea of like virtual, like changing out your poster and stuff like that, which is extra scary now with like AI just getting out of control. I mean, my TikTok feed for the last week has been filled with this new generative fill tool on Photoshop. I don't know if you've seen this in, uh, in application. No. Um, basically, let's, I, I'll give you an example of one I saw yesterday. The lady had taken a picture of a wedding and behind the bride and groom, there was this beautiful like stained glass window, but it was half of it was blocked by one of those ginormous projector screens and a projector. And she selected that area of the photo and said, complete the stained glass window and remove the projector. Just typed in the phrase and click generate. And immediately I'm talking about within seconds, the stained glass wow. window looks like it finished. The projector is gone. The wall is finished and complete. And there's like three variations. You can rotate between the variations and decide which one you, you like the most. And my Facebook feed has just been filled with this. And I'm just like, holy crap, like gone are the days of like, you know, I, oh, I accidentally, somebody accidentally got in the way of the photo. It's like, yeah, just select it, put what you want. This other guy, his, his son and his girlfriend had gone to prom and he selected his son's shirt and said, replace with a tuxedo, tuxedo. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my gosh, like it, this is crazy. So uh, anyways, I digress. I just think that what you're saying is pretty, is pretty fascinating. How, how should businesses, how should brands be leveraging tracking? Like, is this for everyone? Is this for only big, massive brands? Like, like who's this for? So again, like it's because what I do is specifically in the product placement industry, it's kind of hard to talk about one without the other. So kind of the first thing to for my data to be relevant is you have to be doing product placement. So I'll answer sure. that part. Everyone should be doing product placement. As I said, it's the best ROI you'll ever find because, you know, we work with giants like Anheuser-Busch and Dell, but we also work with um, this agency who they put brands on the prices right. And some of them are like big, you know, famous brands like uh, Yeti or um, Sony Hi-Fi's or something, but they also have sometimes quite niche, small products, you know, like a kayak brand or something and they could be a startup and but they pay a few thousand dollars to be on there and then they get a couple of hundred thousand dollars in value so that's an example of you know those numbers aren't huge but that is thousands of percent in roi so whether you are a giant company or a small company 
as, as long as you're a con- well, as long as you're a consumer company, I guess, as long as you're trying to get consumers to buy your brands, I'd absolutely recommend doing some form of product placement. And if you're an extremely like niche, I'm trying to think of like a good example, but it's, I mean, let's just say you're, you're a new barbecue sauce and you really want to get some traction. Fine. Like that, that's actually a perfect example of you find that right movie where, you know, maybe cooking or barbecue or specifically a barbecue sauce is at the center of the plot. And that's, and that's difficult. You need to be in Hollywood. You need to be reading scripts, which is where an agency can be very useful. But agencies, again, they're not that expensive. So maybe you need to have a few thousand dollars in budget to do this. You find the right vehicle and you get in that. And maybe it doesn't work. Maybe the movie doesn't do well. Maybe the, the prop master decides that the visual isn't right. Or maybe you, you're, they decide that somehow the barbecue sauce is at the center of the plot. And then suddenly you become a cultural reference for the next 50 years. And obviously it, was, it wasn't it was a small brand, but think about something like Corona in Fast and Furious. Like yeah. that is just intrinsically part of that. They, they never paid for that. The directors just decided Dominic Toretto drinks Corona. And now it's just an iconic part of it. Yeah. And like you could do that in your particular product category. And obviously, if you're that big, you don't really need to do my data to kind of prove that you've been successful yeah. <laughs> because suddenly everyone's going to be like, you're going to be selling out everywhere. But if you are doing it on like a smaller, more realistic level, it's basically you need my data to prove to your manager that you should keep doing it because, you know, you pay five grand to be on the prices right. And it's like one episode and it airs. And then your manager goes, okay, well, there was a slight uptick in sales, but like, what do we really get here? And you can say, well, actually, we got your you're spending hundreds of thousands on local TV commercials. But when you're buying when you're buying TV ads, like $1 in value costs you $1 because, you know, by definition, whereas here $1 is buying you $1,000 in sort of media value. So it's very important for brands to use data like mine to kind of justify what they do. And another important part of my data that you didn't really get to is beyond the value, we do competitive analysis. So this is more for the bigger brands. But so someone like Dell, we go through the top movies of the year and we don't just record their products. We record apples. We record everyone who does computers, basically. And then we can tell them. This is what I said when I started off about my vision was about comparing yourself to competitors. Yeah. And that's something really important we do. We can tell Dell, we can tell Budweiser, we can tell Lexus what percentage of the value in their in their particular product area they're getting. What is the biggest car brand, beer brand, computer brand? Is it them? Is it one of their competitors? How far behind? How are they achieving that? It's like, are you the biggest brand because you're in one or two big movies? Is it because you're in a lot of smaller movies? And obviously this is where our data can get super, like it can get us small. It goes all the way from doing this one placement was worth this to we've analyzed every movie. This is how much percentage of all the value you're getting. Um, this is what it's driven by. You've got a higher quality, but a lower viewership, more screen time, but less movies, all that sort of thing. And it's just, again, people love data and you need data to kind of justify this. Our data, it helps you prove that product placement works. It helps you make strategic shifts. It may, and But most importantly, the thing about data that I love so much is it just helps you understand things. So you can know you're doing well. But if you can see the data, like this is our overall value and this is what's driving it. These are our best movies and this is why they're the best. And then you can figure out, or I always say, either we like what we're doing and we need the data to tell us to keep doing that, or we don't like what we're doing and we need the data to tell us what we need to change. Yeah, you have to have those competitive insights. I mean, in every other area of marketing, that's like top of mind, right? Absolutely. Like if it comes to your website or your, you know, 
what people think of your brand <clears throat> voice and just everything, you know, you have an idea. Like I can tell you who the, who the number one web designer is in Texas or, you know, whatever the, the case may be. So it's really interesting to think that businesses might not be thinking about that. They might not be thinking about the fact that, well, shit, we're spending a lot of money, whether it's in kind or if it's actual dollar, uh, you know, money on product placement. How do we stack up to the competition? Like, are we are we spending more in ads? Are we spending less in ads? Like, where are we at? Because we want to get the highest ROI. Like, you know, I, I'm kind of bringing it back to my own company, but like as a marketing agency, if if it was me versus Squarespace, for example, right? Like massive platform that's a do-it-yourself builder. And they've been mentioned a thousand times and I've been mentioned too. It's like, okay, we've got some work cut out for us. Like we need to, we need to figure out, is this the right platform for us? And, it, and if it is, what is our, our go-to-market strategy? Like what are we going to actually do to make that happen or a reality? How, how, can, how do you think businesses should slash can leverage the insights that they gain from your team to improve their marketing and branding strategies? Um, as I said, I think they, they need to decide, you know, like you said, the two versus a thousand, they need to, dis but it's, you, you need to know that to be able to That's evolve right. from you it. Have to know. So, so you need to decide like, Hey, is this something you want to do? Maybe it's like, this isn't even worth our while. Like maybe again, you're the barbecue sauce company. I'll just stick with that yeah. one. And you do two placements and then you buy my data and I'm like, okay, there have been a hundred sources that have appeared in movies this year. You guys are getting 0.5% of the, the value there is. And maybe they go, okay, fuck this. We're, yeah, we're out. We're not, not going to do this us. anymore. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe they look at it and they say, wait, here, let's look at the top. Let's see that like 50% of the value is going to the top three brands. Okay, how are these brands doing it? Okay, one of them is Heinz. Okay, great. Everyone uses Heinz. Heinz probably isn't even paying for that. They're just like, they're there to catch up on every there. table. They're there, yeah, exactly. But maybe they see that that second brand, they were just in one movie that did amazingly well that takes place in a restaurant where there's like always sauce on the table. So you go, okay, well, why are they doing that and not us? And again, you can come up with anecdotal evidence from like, if you're from watching these movies, but you're never going to know any, you're never going to have the numbers to back it up until you actually have my data. So you know, using my data, I'm, I don't provide strategic, um, uh, and I don't provide them with um, like advice on what to do. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But I, you know, I basically do everything except tell them what they need to do. I can be like, this is how you should read the data. Yeah. <laughs> and in a case like this, it would be basically, and I, with product placement in general, the two strategies are, as long as you have some budget, either you go all in on one project, they're like, okay, we're going to be in the new Iron Man movie. Like we're going to pay a 50 grand so that he holds up our thing of source at one point. But like that could end up being two seconds and that movie flops and it's actually, you know, it'll be worth something, but it might not be amazing. Whereas if you can actually pepper that 50 grand into like, you know, five small, like mid high level indie, low level studio movies. And again, you don't even, for something like this, you wouldn't even need money. It's more of a case of knowing the prop master. People, and this, yeah. this is where it can take time. I mean, if you want to do it organically, you basically need to be in Hollywood. You need to get to know all these people. And just that when the right prop master is on the right project, they'll call you up and be like, I have an opportunity for your barbecue sauce. Um, or maybe you, you spend a bit of money, you get placed in these five movies, and then you just hope that one of them is going to really take off. And then, you know, suddenly you go from year on year from 0.5% to 30% of all the value because it's everything is very top heavy. The biggest movies get the lion's share of the views. The biggest brands get the lion's share of the value. In 2022, so 
for movies every year. We look at the top 50 movies. We record every single brand that appears in them. And then we do a ranking of the top 100 brands. We've actually just put that out on our website, concavebt.com. So if you go there, you can see the top 100 brands. And the top 100 brands get over 60% of all the value, even though there's over a 1,000 brands that appeared. So if you can be in the top tier of any product category or overall, then you're getting a huge amount of value. So, And the way to do that is it's an element of luck of being in a movie that's going to do well. But then for it to become memorable, it's about finding the right opportunity. Like Reese's Pieces in E.T. is one of the most famous product placements of all time. But it's honestly a very short product placement. He, I rewatched it the other day on the plane because I've been I've, I've seen it. the movie yeah, before, yeah. but I kept hearing about it in my industry for the last 10 years. And then I rewatched it and I'm like, it's actually because it was something new at the time. It, it was, was kind impactful. of remarkable. That's right. Exactly. And it made a story. And obviously, Rhesus was a somewhat known, but not super famous. And there's the whole story that Mars turned them down. And it became the story that's just exploded. And supposedly, the sales of Rhesus there went up. Like The actual sales increased hugely, which is not something that usually happens with product placement. But you find something iconic or the Corona in Fast and Furious, and then it can literally make your company. And and then the, and the investment is basically nothing. So yeah, it, that- it is... Yeah. Yeah, I think I could use the analogy. It's it's a lot like SEO, right? Like whoever's in that number one spot on Google for a given keyword is getting at least 50% of the traffic for that keyword, right? Same thing with the bigger, bigger placements, bigger films. But the reality is without that data of knowing where you are, where you stack to your competitor, it's hard to know. Like I, I'll go back to your barbecue sauce example because you said something that just kind of like sat with me there for a second, which is you know, let's just say that he he got the information and was like, yeah, you're only 0.05% of the placement for this this product category, right? But if he can attribute an ROI or attribute success to that 0.05%, it also gives him the fuel to work with his investors or his marketing department or whatever to say, we don't want to be, if, if that, that 0.05% made that much of an impact, what would 20% do? What would 30% do? And then all of a sudden it gives you the fuel to say, okay, let's pour more into that. Let's, let's fuel the fire, right? So it's really cool that you guys have created the data for companies to take actionable insight from the, from the advice that you've given them or for the, from the data that you've given them. Uh, man, this is, I, I'm actually pretty fascinated because I just, like, I find this to be like a cool, like different out of the box conversation than we usually have, you know, when it comes to marketing, because obviously there's not a lot of people that, or there's not a lot of people that I'm exposed to that do this. I don't know how many people are in the industry that do what you do. Not but, many, <laughs> but it's really cool. So one last question, maybe this is a question you want, maybe you don't. Uh, how is AI affecting what you guys do? Are you guys using it, leveraging it to your benefit to help analyze movies quicker? I mean, how are you guys utilizing AI or do you plan on it? So everything we do is manual and that's one of our selling points. Like at first I remember I was a bit almost shy about it because it sounds so low tech, but I, I remember I had a call in my early years where someone just like asked me, is like, how do you do this? And I said manually. And he said, good. Cause if you told me it was automated, I would call bullshit on it because Interesting. maybe it's, it seems easy that, Oh, there's an iPhone with an Apple logo. Obviously yeah, I can recognize that, but 85% of the brands we're doing, it's like, not to keep harping on, but like, for example, our headphones, at no point have we turned over and shown you the logo. See. So yeah, 
So if I'm analyzing this, I'm going to be spending a lot of time going through black headphones, like, uh, and then maybe I'll see that there's a blue line there, and I'll happen to know that that makes them like a Sony headphone, and and obviously that becomes experience. So it is very difficult to actually identify a lot of what we do because、yeah. the logo isn't visible a lot of the time. That's really fascinating.、Um, yeah. But so, but then you think, okay, but surely AI can learn that.、Um, there was actually you talked about、um, threats earlier. There was actually a competitor that came. To my awareness, a few years ago, that claimed to basically have an AI that could do what I did, and I remember being a bit, you know, understandably、oh, yeah, worried at the time.、Yeah. <laughs> um, both because they took business away that I that I was hoping to get, and then secondly because obviously it could become an existential problem. So I started talking to a family friend who was not specifically in the video analysis AI, but in the tech world. And this was before, obviously, the ChatGPT revolution of the last few months. But obviously, the technology to analyze video already existed, and we chatted through it. And he basically said, "Yeah, it would be possible, but it would be extremely expensive, and you would have to you would have to teach basically everything that's in my brain and more.、Yeah. You would have to teach that to the model." And he said, "The people who do this are the most expensive tech people, you know, in the world. They cost thousands of dollars an hour, sort of thing." And the thing is. It's it's a weird it's a weird flex, but my industry is very very small. It's、yeah. there's plenty there's plenty for a small business operator like me. But as I mentioned before, these companies like Nielsen, Comscore, whatever that sort of at times have done little bits of what I do. There's no interest in them because you know for them to invest and they're never going to invest fifty sixty grand. They are. They need to invest millions into something, and then they become a giant. But then there needs to be tens or hundreds of millions to make, and that is not the case of this industry. The the the、um, specifically what I do, the product placement data industry, is probably a couple of million dollars. Which you know, I have a nice share of that, and I'm really happy with it.、Yeah. But it's of no interest to someone that is going to cost them a million dollars to develop an AI to do that.、Um, and anyway, coming back to The people who supposedly had this tool, the company that worked with them, it turned out they were terrible because this sort this sort of technology is great at scanning, for example, the background of sports events when you have like flat signs with a logo fully visible, and that's what it was designed for. And they tried to apply it to product placement, and it didn't work. They just missed like ninety five percent of all the brands because you know our headphones, a beer bottle where the logo is invisible, they miss all that. They don't get any of the qualitative aspect. They don't know whether something's in the background or the foreground.、Mm -hmm. So, to answer your question,、That's、between、cool. having seen someone try to do it and fail, and just knowing the expense of what it would take to do it right.、Um, It's not something I'm worried about, but you know I'll always keep an eye on it because sure, yeah, yeah, you, might, might yeah, well, you yeah. never know. But that's really cool, man. I think that there's something special about the fact that you're still a human, a human first or human centric <laughs> brand, which is like way more about like taking the time to un you know kind of uncover where there really was placement so that someone gets the most complete, comprehensive data possible versus like. You know, just like security systems only catch so many license plates going by at sixty-five mile an hour, right? Like, it's great, but it can only do so much, right? Yeah. And like you said, it and, may evolve. Yeah. And then there is also you talk about the human element, which is also it's very important for me. Like, I still do most. I do a lot of the scanning myself, and that way, I when I talk to the clients, I'm not just like reading a brief before and presenting it to them. Like, I know it.、I'll, they'll say, "Oh, what happened in this show?"、And、it's like, "Oh, I remember that show. This character drank this beer, but then she actually got poisoned, so it was a fake brand." And I can like, it's important for、They're、me like, to、wow. actually have an <laughs>、yeah. have an understanding of exactly what I'm talking about. And you know, obviously, there's always going to be a human being, even if it was an AI driven business, but. 
you know, someone, again, going back to the example of a big company, someone who's just doing this for a few months while hoping to be promoted to some other department who just reads a brief before and has no understanding of what's actually happening on screen or how product placement works. It's just a completely different product because actually what I found is that Obviously, the foundation of what I do is data, but the second most important thing by far is how I deliver it, whether it's whether it's the reports that I'm producing or the way I explain it, because I spend a lot more time answering questions on the methodology and how we do things and stuff than actually like talk. Because, I mean, I think that my analysis and my reports are quite self-explanatory. So they'll just see a number and they'll see a breakdown. And go, oh, OK. And then it's like, OK, well, how do you do this and how does that work and how do the valuations work? Like I explained to you, because. Once everyone knows all that, they're like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. But without that, these are just numbers. You always need to yeah. context and numbers. Yeah, that's that's cool, man. You got a cool job. Who and our parents are telling us that we can't watch movies all day. Yeah. Dominic, is, <laughs> Dominic is living proof that you can sit around watching movies, but you have to be smart. Still, obviously, you have to <laughs> you have to be patient. And I'm sure there's a lot that went into growing your business, but hey, man, I really appreciate you sharing that. Why don't you do what we always ask our listeners to do, which is leave our listeners with one business growth hack. So my business growth hack would be, and I think this does apply to probably a lot of your audience, is you need to become an absolute expert in your field. You need to be the person that people are going to come to with questions, even if they're not going to immediately be a client. Like I have people who come to me that aren't even doing product placement yet. And maybe they're not even thinking about the data, but they come across, you know, a podcast like yours and they hear me talk about it. And if that's you right now listening, feel free to contact me. I'm always happy to talk to anyone, even if they're not a prospective client. But you become an expert, you go on podcasts, you get mentioned in articles, you put out content on your website. Like we put out these lists of the top 100 brands, the analysis of like new movies and just become an expert at whatever you do, because when the time comes for the people who you've spoken to to actually spend money, they're going to spend it on the expert because they've spoken to you. They know that you know your stuff and like it's just going to be it's it's going to be a no brainer for them. They're not going to come to you for advice. Read the resources on your website. Watch your videos. You have a great YouTube channel as well with videos about all of our content and like they're going to come to that person where they got the information. And especially in a business to business context, like we have a few hundred subscribers on our YouTube van, uh, YouTube channel. Our, our channels get a few thousand views, which in the grand scheme of YouTube isn't amazing. But all I need is for like a couple of people a year to go from watching one of my videos to go onto my website to contact me. And they could become, you know, a hundred thousand dollar a year client down the road. So again, whatever business you're doing, but especially in business to business, just become an expert at what you do. And that's, you know, that's not easy. It's not just doing all the fun stuff I've said, but it is, it's just knowing your craft, being able to talk about it, have interesting data, make it engaging. I'm, I'm lucky that what I talk about is, as you said, super cool and interesting, but yeah, my hack would be become an expert at what you do and share that with people, become a known expert at what you do. I love that, man. Seriously. Thank you, Dominic, for such a great interview. I mean, I'm sure that there's a lot of business owners out there listening right now that have a much better understanding of what you do for a living, how you help entertainment businesses, you know, make a greater impact. I mean, just what you're doing is pretty impressive. Like seriously, I can't say that enough. So I appreciate you sharing all that insight with us. And uh, if you guys like this episode, make sure to share it with a friend, make sure to, to, uh, reach out to Dominic. If you have questions about what we talked about today, I mean, there was a lot of ground covered Dominic. What are the ways people can find you What's your website, your social links, all that fun stuff. 
so our website is www.concavebt.com. Um, you can contact us at info at concavebt.com or you can find me or directly on LinkedIn. So Dominic Artsuni, I'm sure the name will be in the description. And yeah, message me on LinkedIn. I usually answer on there. I check out our YouTube channel. So again, Concave Brand Tracking. If you look up product placement, uh, 2022 movies will be the first videos. Uh, and yeah, those are the main. And you can follow us on Twitter at concavebt. Sweet, man. Hey, I, again, I, I really appreciate it. Hey, this has been a great conversation. Thanks again to our sponsor of today's episode. Thank you for uh, Wingman. Wingman is an all-in-one marketing software for your business. You can manage your pipeline. You can manage your automated texts and emails. You can even create online courses. It's a pretty killer platform. Trustyourwingman.com. Until next time, we'll see you later. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Growth Hacks podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you never miss an episode. To get more marketing tips and tricks, follow Beefy Marketing on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Beefy Marketing. And to take your business to the next level, check out our website at www.beefymarketing.com.